0: Brother, let's give ourselves and our full attention to the Word of God. Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11 is our passage today. We're going to begin reading in verse 2. There's two more sermons on the book of Daniel, and we will be done. I need to warn you before we read that this is a very long, very long and very complex chapter. Um, To be honest, it's pretty dull and confusing, Persian and Greek history. Uh, Some of the best biblical scholars um, around have struggled to identify the point. Uh, One commentator famously said, this chapter is neither entertaining nor edifying. And another added... Uh, we don't see how this chapter could be used for sermons or a sermon. So I got my work cut out for me in that respect. Uh, but we're going to read it anyway, even though it's going to take 10 minutes to read it. Don't let that scare you. Uh, I'm not going to keep you here all day at the same time, though. I'm not going to apologize for the fact that we're going to give ourselves to the public reading of Scripture, and we're going to give ourselves to it with the understanding and the conviction that all Scripture breathed out by God is profitable for training, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. Nevertheless, as I read, I do want to keep you in mind to try to prepare you a little bit. If you remember, this chapter is a response to Daniel's great discouragement in chapter 10 and his prayer. So God responds with this chapter as a way to encourage him. And we've got to find that in this, because it's not evident on the surface. How is this chapter an encouragement? Prepare yourself in that way. But also, listen for themes, repeated patterns, commonalities, with this long list of rulers and stuff, because that's really how you find the point of any passage, oftentimes, in Scripture. Ideas and words and themes that keep coming up again and again, and that's how we understand why it was revealed. So, brethren, let's listen to God's Word. We're going to read beginning in verse 2 down through the end of the chapter. Remember that I am the reader, but God Himself, in the assembly of His people, in His temple, is the speaker to you this morning. And this is what He has for you after this week and whatever is going on in your life. And now I will show you the truth, the angel says to Daniel. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up against all the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others beside these. Then the king of the south shall be strong. One of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule. And his authority shall be a great authority. In some years they shall make an alliance after some years. And the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she will not retain the strength of her arm. And he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up in her attendance. He who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch from her roots shall come shall... One arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, and for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. His sons shall wage war and assemble a great multitude of great forces. Which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as the fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north, and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north, shall again raise a multitude greater than first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and and abundant supplies. In those times many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works, and take a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand. Or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom. And he shall bring terms of an agreement and shall perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom. But it shall not stand or be to his advantage." Afterward he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him, then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall, and shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send in an exactor of tribute for the kingdom for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from that time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully and shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil and goods. He shall devise plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same time, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land at the time appointed. He shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the burnt the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves "...to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the ending nation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done." He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other God, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. A God whom his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. but The king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land. And tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and silver, and the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall, shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to an end, with none to help him. Amen. Pray with me again. Father, Lord, you're, you've promised that your word is, all of it, is profitable. For our salvation and our sanctification. So we simply pray that you would fulfill this promise. That you would prove it to be true in our midst. Even now. That you would confound the wisdom of the world by showing us that even the difficult and confusing portions of Scripture illustrate the power of God unto salvation. We pray that you would speak, Lord, we We are confused, but we are listening. Hear us as we ask in Christ's name. Amen. There's a famous line in Shakespeare's Macbeth Macbeth, that reads, Life, and by that he means history, Life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. When we hear this chapter, I think that might resonate with us a little bit. This chapter is full of sound and fury. It's full of the noise of kings and their scheming of chaos, king kingdoms and their rising and they're falling. We hear the, the plots. We hear uh, the wars. We hear the power grabs. We hear the external conflict. We, we hear the internal conflict. We hear the making and breaking of covenants. We see the temporary fleeting nature of the rule. It shall not last. It shall not endure. Again and again and again. We hear that. We think, yes, sound and fury... But even though it is sound and fury, is there a point to it all? Is Shakespeare right when he says that history signifies nothing and that you're not going to learn anything from reading it? Well, Brethren, as I said before, this chapter was written to strengthen and encourage Daniel at a time of great discouragement. That's the point of it. Daniel thought that with the end of the exile, peace was at hand for God's people. But in reality, things were just getting worse and worse for Israel. And he quickly became disillusioned. This chapter then, and the bare facts of this history, is meant to put his struggles within a larger perspective. And it's meant to uplift him and strengthen his faith and give him a sense of comfort and assurance in God. You see, sometimes life is so hard. Our struggles, our disappointments are so intense that that we're tempted to doubt whether God really cares. We're tempted to doubt whether God is really in control. But sometimes what we need, the assurance that we need that God does care, that our God is in control, that He is fulfilling His promises, sometimes that assurance that we need, it isn't found in the explanation of of our trials and our circumstances. Sometimes the assurance that we need, that God is in control, that God cares, it's found in how He And seeing how he knows and how he cares and how he controls the greater events of history. Even events that are unrelated to us, seemingly. I hope you understand what I mean by that. Because often in our discouragements, in our difficulties, in our trials, uh, we want answers. And we're clinging for hope for what's going on with us. But sometimes the answers that we need, sometimes the encouragement that we need, it's not found in our circumstances, but it's found in seeing how God is in control in greater circumstances. And that's part of what's going on in this chapter. That's part of why even the bare facts of this history are to be an encouragement to Daniel and an encouragement to us. Daniel is to see that God has ordained history and that He's bringing it about according to a sovereign plan. Daniel is to see that the struggle of the people of God isn't temporary, but it's part of an ongoing spiritual battle that will continue to the very end of days. Daniel is to see as well that the end of the exile and the fulfillment of the promises of God are not going to bring about another book of Joshua. Political, earthly, cultural conquest. Rather, the kingdom of God that God is ushering in in the new covenant is far different than the kingdom under the old covenant. In contrast to the theocracy, in contrast to the earthly rule, in in, in contrast to the cultural rule where you have the law of the land and the law of God as one. Theonomy, theocracy, cult, and culture, God's kingdom in the new covenant is no longer marked by might and rule and the sword and power. It's marked by suffering, it's marked by oppression, it's marked by humility and the persecution of God's people. And yet, the suffering and the oppression and the persecution have an important purpose. Because they are ways in which God purifies and prepares His people to the end. And it's ways in which God's wisdom, confounding the wisdom of this world, that, that, that values might and, and strength and, and convert at the edge of the sword, it confounds the wisdom of this world by putting God's wisdom in the, on, in the cross on display brethren is why history even though it's full of sound and fury it does signify something It signifies that God is sovereign it signifies that no earthly kingdom will last it gives meaning to our suffering it gives meaning to the wisdom of God confounding the wise and it points us to that glorious climactic end where God's reign and rule will be established forever Brethren, when we see this, we'll understand that history, when it's viewed through the eyes, through the lens of God's Word, is absolutely foundational to right Christian living. So with that in mind, I want you to see this as we work through four points today. Four things. And I want to answer the question, what do we see when we view history through the lens of God's Word? Well, four things from this passage that we see today. First, we see that God's word is utterly reliable. It's the first thing we see. God's word is utterly reliable. Um, the first chunk of this chapter uh, is verse 2 through 20. And it covers a long period of Greek and Persian history. It, it covers from the time in which Daniel writes, one, uh, Excuse me, um, 530 or so B.C., It covers from 530 to 175, about 350, 355 years. Um, But what's amazing about verse 2 through 20 is that it's prophecy, Daniel's writing again in, in year 530, and yet it's so specific in how it predicts the next 355 years. One commentator said, nowhere else in the Bible is prediction as specific and detailed as here. In fact, this chapter, it's one of the main reasons that liberal Bible scholars say Daniel could not have been written by Daniel. They reject it outright because it's too specific. Daniel couldn't have known that. They argue instead that this has to be somebody hundreds of years later pretending to be Daniel and writing after the fact. Brethren, of course, our doctrine of the Scripture does not support this at all. And I would say even some of the historical evidence and the sources and language that's used don't support this either. This is Daniel writing in the 6th century B.C. Part of the reason then that this chapter was given is to assure us, to encourage us that God ordains the future. And it's specific detail. How do we know this for sure? Well, um, we're not going to go through this line by line. There's so much here. If you want to talk to me afterwards, I'd be glad to talk with you. In fact, a better idea, if you have a good study Bible, Reformation Study Bible, ESV Study Bible, something like that, just pull it out and and walk through it. Um, It's pretty clear. The, The facts of history are straightforward, and you can read this alongside Greek and Persian history and see all these things, how they became fulfilled. Um, but I will highlight just a couple of things, just so, just so that you see kind of the big picture. Um, just like in chapter 8, in verses 3 and 4, Alexander the Great is mentioned. Uh, verse 4 mentions that the kingdom didn't go to his posterity. Well, we know from history, his sons were assassinated. And his kingdom was divided, as it says here, the four winds of heaven. It was divided among his four generals. Um, Then, beginning of verse 5, all the way down through verse 20, we have this king of the north and king of the south language. And this represents the um, uh, Ptolemaic dynasty, if I said that right, Ptolemaic dynasty, and uh, the dynasty of the south out of Egypt. And it also represents the uh, Seleucid dynasty, uh, kingdom of the north out of Syria. And again, the details, if you read their history and you read this chapter, it it aligns in remarkable ways. Uh, For example, in verse 6, an alliance was made involving the daughter of the king of the south. Uh, We know from history that um, uh, this daughter was sent to marry the king of the north and thus bring peace. Uh, But the king of the north was already married. He was going to divorce his wife to marry this daughter of the king of the south and his, his wife, that he was going to divorce, um, poisoned this daughter, unfortunately. Um, and of course, what happened? Chaos, sound, and fury um, ensued from that. Verse 7 through 9 then kind of uh, detail the ensuing conflict that followed this. We know that. Uh, From history, that the dead daughter's brother then ascended to the throne. He invaded the south and he conquered. He carried back spoil uh, to Egypt Um, until later they reached peace there, uh, mentioned in verse 8. Verse 10 through 13 details more conflict from these kingdoms, and the, the theme is back and forth. There's no permanent king, there's no permanent rule or ruler. Uh, Verse 14 mentions the phrase violent among your own people, which is interesting. We know from history that the Jews attempted to overthrow southern rule, but they failed. Um, We have in verse 15 as well, the king of the north regains the upper hand. And, And look at verse 16. Look at what's said. He who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land, With destruction in his hand. This refers to Antiochus III. He defeated the south. He took control of Israel. The glorious land. And he has destruction in his hand. He hatched a plot as well. Uh, He sent his daughter to try and seduce the king of the south. In order to control him. But if you read in verse 17. His plan fails. Uh, She ended up falling in love with the king and turned against her father. And so the result from that is that he turned his attention in another direction and then was ultimately conquered by the Romans. See, this is just, this is important background to um, what we're going to pick up on here in verse 21 in just a minute. But, But I want you, don't miss the point. Again, Daniel writes... Hundreds of years before these things take place. And yet, he, the Spirit of God through him reveals these things, predicts them with very specific detail. And that's how this chapter encourages us. It should encourage us and encourage Daniel even though it doesn't speak to our circumstances. God controls the future. And sometimes God tells us the future because He cares for us. And he wants us to know the future. He wants us to know that he is in control. He wants us to know that that nothing in our life, that nothing in the church, that that nothing in the history of kings and kingdoms, nothing catches him off guard. Nothing catches him by surprise. Nothing catches him uh, unprepared. Nothing thwarts his purposes. God reveals history because He has ordained history. And sometimes He pulls back that curtain to show us here a loving Heavenly Father. Child, I am in control. Even over mighty kings and kingdoms that seem to have unlimited power. God's Word is utterly reliable. Secondly, When we view history through the lens of God's Word, we see that earthly kingdoms always rise and fall. Earthly kingdoms always rise and fall. It's not hard to notice here how pride and the lust for power and cunning and instability mark all of this history. The balance of power always goes back and forth, but it never settles. Like the the theme again and again and again and again that comes up through all of this list here are kings and kingdoms that arise, that become strong, um, but then they're broken and shall not endure. Daniel is to see here that this is a defining characteristic of the kingdoms of this world. God is saying to Daniel... This is how it's always going to be. And God is saying to Daniel, in some sense, this is how the kingdoms of this world are different from the kingdom of our Lord. We saw this, of course, back in chapter 2 with the dream in Nebuchadnezzar. In the midst of the rise and fall of all these earthly kingdoms, the kingdom of God is one that grows slowly into a mountain that covers the whole globe. It outlasts them all. It endures. Nevertheless, another emphasis in this is that even in the rise and fall of earthly kingdoms, sometimes, even though we are citizens not only of the earthly kingdoms but of the kingdom of God, sometimes God's people are inevitably caught in the middle of this all. Uh, There's a reason why these kingdoms are referred to as the kingdom of the north and kingdom of the south. You know, uh, it's not American Civil War, just uh, FYI, okay? Uh, the perspective that is being written from here is Israel, the glorious land. And so the language of the north and south, it gives the picture of God's people in the middle of this conflict. Now, we're going to get to persecution uh, in just a moment, but I do want you to note, just in this first section, 2 through 20, the Persian and the Greek kingdoms are not hostile to the people of God. But even still, the people of God are kind of caught in the middle of the world's lust for power. They're getting pushed around a little bit. There's some collateral damage going on here. See, this is why Daniel shouldn't be shocked that things aren't going well with the rebuild in Jerusalem. This is why Daniel shouldn't be shocked um, that... You, God's people are sometimes pushed around and, and attacked and get caught up in these things. This is why we shouldn't be shocked. When we get caught up in the middle of politics and legislation and some of the uh, world's conflicts. I mean, I feel that every day. As a citizen, I look at what's going on in our nation and I'm like, well, wait a second, this is also encroaching upon the church. This is also encroaching upon Not just my rights as a citizen, but my my rights, um, uh, but my freedom of religion, and 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 these things. We get caught up in the world's conflict, even when you know the world isn't particularly hostile towards the church. Sometimes, in their lust for power, they just trample us. We're just in the way. It's not like they hate God and are out to stamp out the church. Even though there's a greater spiritual warfare, they may be acting. Um, in ways they're not fully aware of. But still, sometimes they, we just get caught in the middle. But That's part of the point here. Daniel is to see the kingdoms of the world will never be at peace. They, were never, they will never fix the ills of society. They, they will never endure permanently. They will never cease fighting for power, even though there might be great periods of peace. We've seen some periods of peace, you know, in the history of America, it's not going to last. Don't believe the lie of progressivism. Don't believe the lie of manifest destiny. And what I mean by that is that things are just getting better and better. Like there are things that just get, you know, into the dustbin of history, and we've moved on from that, and, you know, great progress and, you know, I mean, don't, don't forget the fact that the 20th century was the bloodiest century in the history of the world. It's less than 100 years ago. You've got two great world, war, war, world wars and all the fallout of that. Brethren, as much as I, I love America, as much as I love freedom of religion, as much as I'm committed as a citizen to do everything I can to lawfully preserve those things... And to fight for justice and to fight for the cause of of the innocent and the unborn and for freedom of religion. You you need to know what God's word said. It's not going to last forever. It's not going to last. Eventually, the kingdom of America is going to crumble. Kingdoms of this earth always rise and fall. They do not endure. They're always marked by pride and lust and power grabs. So, when we look at history through the lens of God's Word, we see okay, this is the pattern of things. It's going to last up until the last day. These are the uh, 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 characteristics of it. I am not to set my hope in the kingdoms of this world. It's a shaky foundation. And if I do, I'm going to lose my mind when the kingdoms of this world crumble. It also puts in contrast how God's kingdom stands out. And by contrast, not marked by pride, not marked by power, not by, marked by political rule, not marked by cultural advances, but marked by faithfulness and weakness and humility and love and peace and worship and truth that endure forever. I'm going to move quickly. Thirdly, history through the lens of God's Word shows us that persecution of God's people is always inevitable. The persecution of God's people is inevitable. It's unescapable. Here, there's a decided shift in verses 21 through 35. Um, The first section, 2 through 20, details 355 years. I mentioned that already. But the next section only focuses on 12 years. It like screeches to a halt, slows down. It, it's, you know, the narrowing of the, you know, you get the wide angle lens and then it just zooms in, zooms in and you see then the main point. And the main point really here is the exploits of Antiochus the fourth. Antiochus the we we've already considered him back in chapter eight. We're not going to go in great detail today. I'm not going to repeat a lot of the things that we saw then. Um, Antiochus the is, you know, who marked, um, sparked the Maccabean rebellion Remember I told you before that that's still marked by Hanukkah, uh, even in our country, uh, by, by uh, Orthodox Jews, um, uh, even to this day. Uh, but Antiochus IV was, again, he was, he was a very evil man. Verse 21 speaks of him as a contemptible person to whom royal majesty had not been given. Uh, he gained the throne that was supposed to go to someone else in the royal line. Uh, he, he gained it by a, a careful scheme. And then uh, 21 says that he flattered people. Uh, well, he, uh, history shows that he paid off people to gain his power as well. Verse 22 speaks of how he swept away his enemies, including the prince of the covenant. Um, this probably refers to the Jewish high priest at the time. Um, Onias III, he resisted Antiochus and was poisoned. Um, you know, one of those accidental things. Oh my goodness, what happened? He just wiped away, right? Uh, verse twenty-three speaks of an alliance that is made, and yet he acts deceitfully. He famously made and broke a covenant with uh, uh, Ptolemy the sixth. Verse twenty-four speaks of how he do, did what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers had done. Uh, Antiochus was brutal beyond measure, far greater than any of his predecessors. Uh, and he also rejected the, the pagan gods of his ancestors as well. Another detail that stands out uh, is verse twenty-eight: He shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against, set against the holy covenant. In one sixty-nine A.D., he plundered Egypt, and as he was heading home, he stopped by the land uh, uh, through the land of Israel, and he harshly punished the Jews. Killing over 80,000 of them, many women and children. He plundered the temple as well. He set his heart against the Holy Covenant. But the turning point comes in verses 29 through 35, because this details how he invaded Egypt again later on, uh, but he was stopped by the Romans. Uh, The Romans at that time uh, were growing in power, and they joined forces with the uh, Ptolemaic forces. And um, so them together, when Antiochus reached them, he was no match for them, especially their ships of Kittim, as we see in verse 40, uh, the the naval force that they had at that time. History reveals, Roman history, uh, reveals that the, the Roman commander met Antiochus outside the city, and he literally drew a circle around the guy. It's fascinating if you read the details. And the Roman commander said to him, think carefully before you step out of the circle. If you take one foot forward, I will destroy you. And obviously, you know, made the decision easy for him. But this shows how it absolutely embarrassed Antiochus. And so in a rage, he did go backwards. But in a rage, he took out his anger on Israel. He took out his frustration on them. We read that against, uh, in verse 30. He shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He went into the land of Israel, renamed the temple, the temple of Zeus, placed the statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies, sacrificed a pig on the altar of the Holy of Holies, took away the burnt offerings, forbid circumcision, we, we read this before, uh, tore up, burned copies of the Torah, all of those things. But also, note as well, I'm not going to recover that ground, but also note as well, he shall turn back at the end of verse 30, he shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. What's interesting about this phrase, he didn't wage war on all the Jews, he wasn't racist in that respect. Because he found many Jews who were willing to compromise and forsake the covenant with their God. God is showing Daniel that some of his own people are going to join forces with the enemy. And this really resonated with me when I thought about it. We see the same thing in our day, don't we? When the world rages against Christians, there's no shortage of those who are willing to compromise and go along with it, the drop of a hat. You know, we think about what's going on in America right now. The, the, the persecution, if we want to call it that. Well, we should call it that. Uh, the oppression. It isn't physical. But it's certainly idea, uh, ideological, isn't it? You know, Christians are backwards for believing in absolute truth. For affirming the authority of Scripture. For saying that Christ is the only way. For saying that, you know, heaven and hell are real places. For saying that sexual immorality and homosexuality and transgenderism and abortion are sinful and evil and invite the wrath and judgment of God. The world... In our day. And America scoffs at that. They hate it. And, and what do we see? We see no shortage of professing Christians who are willing to forsake the covenant in order to appease the world. This is hinted at again in verse 32 when it says, He shall seduce with flattery. Isn't that always characteristic of Satan's schemes? Flattering people, seducing them in the name of God to to, uh, turn and violate the covenant? And yet the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Another emphasis, importance in Scripture on knowing who God is. Knowing His Word. Otherwise, you will be seduced by powers greater than you. Nevertheless, we've got to run toward a point here verse 35 some will stumble so that what do we read there so that they may be refined purified and made white until the end brethren i think that's really the main point here on one hand god is showing daniel that sometimes god's people are just caught up in the politics of the world's lust for power other times, God's people are the object of the world's specific anger and wrath, as we see here. That's inevitable. It will come eventually. That's for the structure of this passage. With the rise in kingdom, uh, kings and kingdoms, we may experience periods of great peace, but eventually it's going to turn against the church. And yet, in all of this, God is saying, Daniel, there's a purpose in this. For the people of God, our suffering is the Lord." sanctifying us, purifying us, refining us, making us white, preparing us for eternity. This is how we were to see that suffering and persecution is not without purpose in God's economy. Antiochus raging against the people of God is not as though God has lost control or that his promises have failed. Yes, while while Satan uses such things to expose fake Christians, it's part of the language behind this as well, to distinguish who's true and who's not. It's a good, necessary purpose for persecution and oppression. That's why everything going on in our culture, it's not entirely a bad thing. It is a bad thing. It's not entirely a bad thing. Every Christian that comes out as pro-LGBT, every Christian that ends up denying the deity or the exclusivity of Christ or the truthfulness of God's Word is a grace because it distinguishes them from the true people of God. It's a refining that is necessary for the cause of the Gospel and the glory of God so that Christ's name is not drug through the mud. But even though Satan uses such things to expose the fake Christians, God uses them to refine those who are true and genuine. And it's for our good and it's for God's glory. And it's also, as we see at the end of verse 35, it's only until the time of the end. It's limited, it's on a leash. God has said, you know, like, he's, like he said the boundaries of the oceans. He said the boundaries of persecution. You may come this far, but no further. Persecution is inevitable, but it's purposeful, and it's mercifully only for a limited time. Fourth and finally, when we view history through the lens of God's Word, we see that peace, security, and rest will only come when God rescues us at the last day. Our reward, peace, lasting peace, security, safety, comfort, the end of our sorrows, only comes when God rescues us at the last day. It's not going to come before that. Um, Here we're going to have to slow down for a second. Verse 35 and 36, there seems to be a very subtle shift in the focus. Um, we have this statement that seems like a conclusion at the end of verse 35 for you know, this appointed time language. But then in verse 36, we have a shift in the wickedness of this king isn't depicted in how he rages politically or against God's people, but against God himself. Right? He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. This is blasphemy here. Um, The reason I point this out is because from verse 40 through the end of the chapter, we have details that are not known to human history. Uh, At first glance, the king, verse 36, it seems to be a continuation of the king it was just spoken of. And yet, the details that follow, we know were not true of Antiochus' life. How do we understand this? There's been three ways that typically interpreters understand this. The liberal scholars say, well, the author just got things wrong. And we can, of course, dismiss that right off bat. Others say that this uh, refers to a point in the future when another type of Antiochus will arise in Palestine and this geographical warfare will take place in the Middle East with reborn nations and such. And um, I, of course, do not adopt that view either. But the third view, it's surely the right one, is that Antiochus. Yes, I said that, but surely it's the right one. So confidently, yes, Um, it's very difficult. I, I will admit, but I think the the right view is that Antiochus is a prototype of wicked rulers and their lust for power and persecution. A prototype that will manifest itself in the Antichrist at the end of days. In other words, Daniel blends Antiochus and his exploits with what's coming at the end with a final and full Antichrist. And and why do I say this? Um, First, as I mentioned, there's a subtle shift between 35 and 36. So in the text itself, it seems that he can kind of move from Antiochus to the distant future. Um, But also, in this chapter as well, um, We see that the defeat and the end of this king in verse 36 doesn't come until Christ returns. And so we know that obviously Antiochus can't be in view because he died so long ago. Another thing from this chapter, in the earlier parts of the chapter, the kings of the north and the kings of the south, um, that that phrase was uh, uh, referred to at least four individual kings in the north. And at least six individual kings in the South. And they weren't even consecutive. So there seems to be precedence in this chapter for the possibility of just speaking generically about a king. But even more than this, in 2 Thessalonians 2, it's clear that the Apostle Paul adopts this specific language to refer to the final Antichrist. He takes Daniel language on his lips. And in Matthew twenty-four as well, and Luke twenty-one, which we heard earlier, Jesus does the same thing. In fact, in Matthew twenty-four, fifteen, he refers to the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet in reference to future events. So this chapter details prophecy that is still future for us. It highlights the characteristics of Antichrist who have and will arise, uh, uh, arise, and of course the final one who will be revealed at the uh, last day as well. And we see characteristics that are typical of all of them. Self-willed man, verse 36, do as he wills. Prideful, arrogant, blasphemous, self-exalting. He speaks out against God. He's full of of false doctrine. picture here is Satan in the tempting words, you shall be like God. It's exalting humanity above all things. Verse 37, it's interesting. It says, He shall pay no attention to the gods of His fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall magnify Himself above all. To me, this screams secularism. He doesn't advocate the world's religions, the God of His fathers. He doesn't pay attention to other gods. He's exalted man as God. In this note about women here, it's notoriously difficult. We're not sure exactly what it means. Um, But perhaps it means that He despises women. He tramples on them. It could also mean that He's overly drawn to women, like He's a womanizer. Another way of trampling on them. Or it even could be read to indicate homosexuality. He has no desire or love for women, as other translations put it. In one way or the other, he mistreats and disregards women. He's literally beastly. In verse 38, we read that he honors the God of fortresses. This is human strength, human power, human political rule. A mark of the kingdoms of this world. Human accomplishments are his God. Convert by might of power. Again, in all of this, it's hard not to see what's going on in our day. I'm not saying that this is our, we are seeing the fulfillment of this, but it's certainly possible. Secularism and humanism and, and the rise and triumph of the modern self the overthrow of everything ancient. I mean, even other real world religions reject secularism. They reject the, the sexual revolution that's going on. Then in verse 39, he will have a tremendous following and will conquer world powers. In verse 40-45, through 45, war will ensue. And it, and it gives a lot of details there, but I just want to say, don't read this as, it ha- as if it has to be a military war. And don't read this as if it has to um, be waged in the land of Palestine or another geographic location. This, I, I don't believe that, that that's the only way that we, that, that we can take this here. From the rest of this book, the real war is spiritual. And the true sanctuary and the true land of God is not a, a, a plot of land in the Middle East, it's God's people and where they gather. The battle is over the mind, the battle is over truth. And we know this battle also at the end, Second Thessalonians 2.8 says that Christ will destroy this man of sin by the breath of his mouth at his coming. This isn't a war that's waged on earth with swords and guns and bombs, even though the Bible depicts that, those, that war in that language to give us understanding of what's really going on. Brethren, this is a pattern, though, that God wants us to see. Ideological war sometimes spilling out into physical war. Rulers and authorities that rise and fall. Us getting caught up in the middle. And the words of Jesus that we read today is the exhortation to us as well. We must be ready. We must recognize the sign of the times. We must view history not as the accidental fallout of of circumstances and chance but as the fulfillment of God's eternal plan being worked out. And yet in all of this, where is our hope? Where is our rescue? We're going to look at this next week because it continues into chapter 12, but for now, just note that though there will be trouble like never before, there will be a resurrection. And God's people will be raised to everlasting life. God is telling Daniel: don't look to human power, don't look to earthly kingdoms, don't look to earthly redemption of political or social or cultural salvation. Those things do not give peace, security, and rest. No, you need a mark that suffering and oppression will will will. happen and take place until the end this is the future that that awaits us don't be caught off guard but know that God is in control that he's revealed this to us to to give us that comfort and the hope that he is in control and yet at the end he will come and our deliverance will be when he appears and he raises us from the dead at his second coming That's how the kingdom of God is so different from the kingdoms of this world. Power, might, political rule, peace, security, rest, humility, persecution, and yet rescue, rescue. I will come and get you at the end. Well, brethren, to draw all this to a conclusion today. The overall point I've tried to show you is that history is full of sound and fury. But contrary to what Shakespeare writes, it does signify something. And if we take this a little further in the light of the New Testament, what we see is that all of history, the point of it and the significance of it is all found in Jesus Christ. all of what we read in the first half of this chapter prepared and enabled Christ to come in the flesh. And all of the history after Christ came that still awaits us is representative of Christ building His church with wisdom that confounds the wisdom of this world, but it also prepares and enables Him to come again. He conquered through suffering and dying. His people conquer through suffering and dying it is the weak and the worthless in the eyes of the world that God uses to shame the strong and so there is no lasting kingdom here we have no lasting city the writer of Hebrews says we await the city from God that comes out of heaven and comes at his coming when we will be raised to ever live with him brethren This is how we can have assurance that God is in control, even if we can't make sense of our own circumstances. The proof that God is in control and the proof that God loves us is found at the cross. There we see the perfect orchestration of history. There we see the monument of his eternal love. There we see the fulfillment of all his promises. There we see that our greatest and most pressing need that far exceeds any need we can have in this life was met when he sent his son to die for our sin. And if he met those needs, how shall he not also freely give us all things? That's our hope, to look to the cross to find comfort and assurance of what's going on in our life right now. May God give us the grace to do that. Let's pray.